You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. I want to do a topical study today, looking at the Word of God in history, looking at the Bible, looking at archaeology, and this will just give us a different perspective as we move forward in this book. Now, as uh, believers, we affirm what we call the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and we get this from the text in 2 Timothy that says all scripture is inspired or is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for the training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete. And this is why we have uh, the Bible as the authority in our lives. And the very fact that we have a verse like this should, should, if it is true, make the Bible unique in world history. It should be like no other book. There's no other book that can claim the same credentials as the Bible. And that is actually when you study this objectively and you look at history, you see that the Bible is absolutely unique in history in almost every way. And in the most obvious way, in the number of Bibles that have been produced and been sold. It is the world's best-selling book every single year without fail by millions of copies. And it has been ever since it was first published, really, or the printing press, at least, came into existence. And that is just one of the facts of the Bible. And what I want to do this morning is go through and just show you the, the fingerprints of the Lord as he has been in history that we have recorded us in the Bible. The Bible is also described in Hebrews 4.12 as being living and active. It's an unusual phrase to describe a book. Basically, this means that because it is breathed out by God, That means God, although he used human authors, he was in charge of the production of the Bible, and it is a life-giving message. It carries that life-giving message of the gospel wherever it goes. And when it says it is living and active, you can test that objectively. This is why when the Bible goes into cultures, to nations, tribes, tongues, people, history of the world, testifies that wherever the Bible goes, it changes cultures, it changes people, it changes many different things. And you can look over the history of the world and see that. History testifies to this fact. Let me read to you one old quote by a scholar called A.T. Pearson. He's an old Greek linguist. He said this, the Bible is the greatest traveler in the world. It penetrates into every country, civilized and uncivilized. It is seen in the royal palace and in the humble cottage. It is the friend of emperors and beggars. It is read by the light of the dim candle amid Arctic snows. It is read under the glare of the equatorial sun. It is read in the city and the country, amid the crowds and in solitude, wherever the message is received, it frees the mind from bondage and fills the heart with gladness. And of course, many here can testify to that in their own lives today, and we're going to have a little look at some different ways of why this is. Now, I said it's the world's best-selling book. You could also argue that it's the world's most controversial book. There's no other book in the history of the world that has been banned, that has been burnt, that has been outlawed more times than the Bible. Go back into our country. In Tudor, England, owning a Bible could get you hung for having a Bible in your own language. Go to Stalin's Russia. That was illegal to have a Bible. Today, go to North Korea. You see the punishable by death or into internment camps to have a Bible. Go to Saudi Arabia. No Bibles on and on around the world today. This in itself should tell us something. In fact, there are still over 50 countries in the world today where it is, if not outright illegal, to own or distribute a Bible. It is extremely dangerous to do so. And that is uh, just a fact of the world. And that, again, should tell us something. It should make us pay attention. And it does, again, for me, in a sort of roundabout way, prove that the Bible is different than all other books. There's no other book that causes uh, such reactions. There's something different about this book. And it's almost as if you could say there are forces in this world 
that are against the message of this book. The reason why all these countries ban this book is because of that first point. It is living and active, and it brings the message of the gospel wherever it goes. Jesus said to the Jewish people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is why the Bible is so either hated or loved on two different extremes, because those who love Jesus love his word. Those who hate the Lord and reject God in this world generally don't like his word. These are the things that we see play out in history. The word of God bears witness to the person of Jesus. And this is why, like I said, for me, this is very good evidence that that verse, all scripture is inspired by God, is true. There is something very different about this book. And for us as believers, if you are a believer here, it is imperative as we are disciples of Jesus, that means we're followers of Jesus, we're learners of Jesus, we learn that we study his word. Look at this verse, John 8, 31, 32. If you continue in my word, this is Jesus speaking, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And this is one way how you separate what we call a, a cultural sort of Christianity that has been embedded in a culture for so long, but it doesn't have the life, it's not real Christianity, it's just external trappings. How to distinguish between that and true Christianity is if someone loves the word of God. If you are a disciple, you will be studying, following, reading, learning, applying the word of God to your lives. You will see the word of God go out into the nations, into the cultures, and that's a very good way uh, to do that, to separate that. And this is also why we see so many attacks targeted against the word of God. And it's important that Christians can respond to this in many different ways. Just as there were mockers in the first century when this was around, when the apostles were preaching, all the way back in the Garden of Eden when God's word was first questioned, we see people questioning the word of God uh, all the time today. Let me give you a few examples from our own times. Obviously famous character here, Mr. Dawkins. He says, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, just plain weird as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous editors, uh, authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Typical, if you're familiar with Dawkins, that's typical. He's a very good writer in many ways, but that is a typical uh, statement that he has. Sam Harris, another very famous new atheist, he says, the Bible, it seems certain, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology, just by way of caveat, actually people who believe the Bible were the f one of the main people who didn't believe the earth was flat uh, back in the early, uh, early times. But to rely on such a document as the basis for our worldview, how however heroic the efforts of redactors, is to repudiate 2,000 years of civilizing insights that the human mind has only just begun to inscribe upon itself through secular politics and scientific culture. Now, of course, hopefully, if you've been with us in our studies, you'll know there's just almost every statement in that line is in error, factually, not just because I'm a Christian saying that, but you, you could prove that. We've done that at other times. Another one, most people will know this man, Ricky Gervais. It's almost as if the Bible was written by racist, sexist, homophobic, violent, sexually frustrated men instead of a loving God. Weird. He's a, he's a comedian, obviously, if you know him from office fame and various other things. He's a very ardent atheist. He, he hates the Bible. And then even Gandalf is getting in on it. I've often thought the Bible should have a disclaimer in the front of it saying this is fiction. Th this is the sort of thing that you see quite common. Usually these statements are clickbait headings. There's not usually much fact behind them, but... What I want to try and do this morning is present a counter-argument to these sort of things, and we're going to do that by looking at the subject of archaeology. 
I want to show you really that the Bible is anything but fiction, and you see the fingerprints of the biblical story throughout the history of the world all over the place. And statements like this from people like this, to me, really actually just prove the truth of Scripture that they are unwilling. Uh, to, it's not really an evidence issue. Most of the time, as you study, you'll find that this is an issue in their lives. They don't want to give their life to the Lord. They've got moral issues or something like that that they want to hold on to and don't want to submit to the Bible. And thus, you come up with uh, sort of pseudo-intellectual arguments for rejecting the Bible. It's all very common. But there is a reason why the Bible is called the book of all books. We're going to have a look at that this morning. One of my favourite statements about the Bible, and I, I know I've probably shared this story with you before, it comes from an old commentary that I, I was reading one time. It's by a man called Layman Strauss. It was a commentary on the, commentary on the book of Daniel. Uh, and he begins his commentary by saying this. He says, The Bible is the word of God. All the adjectives and all the superlatives of all the languages in all the earth fall short of the necessary adequacies to describe this book of all books. Now, I remember reading that, and like, when it comes to Bible stuff, I'm quite old-fashioned. Like, I like old leather-bound books, I like old-fashioned language, and I like that sort of thing. I'd still have parchments, really, for, for manuscripts and things like that. But I remember when I first read this, I was sitting in bed reading, and Sarah was sitting in bed, and she was on her iPad. She was tapping away, organising our lives. And, and I was sort of having one of my moments, you know, where people roll their eyes. And I was like, oh, just listen to the language, Sarah. Like, all these ads. And I tried to, like, explain it to her, say it to her, and make her really be like, oh, it's amazing. And she just went, so you mean it's really great? <laughs> and she goes back to it. And I was obviously lost for kind of, I was like, well, y yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And that's, she summed it up. I mean, that is true. But I still prefer the first way that this... Uh, other writer put it but that is true the bible is amazing it is the book of all books and we are going to see that uh, a little bit today so i want you to get your indiana jones fedoras out we're going to take a, a a broad survey of history now and see how the bible is found in all parts of the world so let's go back right to the very early chapters of the bible and look at one of the events that is often hugely contested but yet explains a huge amount of what we find in the disciplines of uh, geology and things like that and that is the flood the great flood of Noah, as we call it, or the great flood. Many of you will have heard this. You would have seen uh, pictures of the ark. You would have heard all these sorts of things. It's probably one of the most accepted stories in the sense of you still find children's books about it in secular bookstores. You won't find anything else in there, but you find pictures of Noah's ark. Usually those pictures of Noah's ark are just terrible pictures, tiny little boat, bathtub arcs. There's no way that those things are even remotely related to what you find written about in the Bible. But this is what we have. So let's look in history. And I'm not talking about all these expeditions to try and find the ark that you see all over the internet and those kind of things. Forget about all that. I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle. If it is true that this does relate to the early history of mankind, you would expect to find at least stories, legends about it in most cultures throughout the globe because the bible teaches that we didn't evolve in different areas all over the globe the history is that we were all uh, in the same area when they came off the ark and they spread after the tower of babel and that's how you get different nations uh, nations and races and cultures and all these sorts of things now it just so happens that an ancient belief in a great flood is preserved in many cultures you can't really see that i know you can't read that but basically down one side you have all the elements of the biblical story man in sin, divine destruction, flood, a saved family, a boat, and all these kind of stories. Across the top, you have all the different cultures of the world, Persia, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, Italy, many of them. And all the green dots are the cultures that have a flood story back in their earliest history. And the red ones are that have a partial flood story in their earliest history. So you find 
Stories of a flood, very reminiscent to the Bible, usually with one group of people being saved all over the globe. In every culture on this globe, you find stories about this. And that in itself is quite uh, an important thing. Let me live, give you one very famous one. This is the Gilgamesh flood epic. This was found in Nineveh. It's about 7th century BC. It has many similarities to the biblical account, a divinely planned flood to punish a rebellious human race, a righteous family that was saved on a boat. Everyone on the boat was saved and they came off the boat when it rested on a mountain and the floodwaters subsided and on and on the similarities go. Now, of course, many skeptics look at this and say, well, that's where the Bible got it from, but that doesn't explain all the similarities in the other flood cultures too. You see, rather than believing that all these legends arose independently in different cultures that as of yet had no communication with each other according to the evolutionary worldview, it makes much more sense to believe that they all trace their origin back to one original event, and then that event was obviously just taken with them into different cultures and nations and then embellished, changed, forgotten slightly over the years. But the true story, I believe, is what we have in the Bible. And this is what we find in every single culture, pretty much ancient culture anyway, around the world. And that, for me, needs explaining in a, in a way better than is being explained by others. That's just a couple of things. Let's look at another very uh, early history. This is known as the Sumerian King List. People don't really know what to make of this thing. It's very early, second millennia BC, and it describes the list of the early ancient kings of Sumeria, with one of the earliest civilizations. And it has a very unusual phrase in it. It has a list of kings, and the ages of these kings are extremely long. They don't, there's a lot of debate about the numbers because they're ridiculously long. And then it has this one little line, and it said, before those, the list of kings, before the great flood covered the, covered the earth. And then it continues with kings afterwards and the lifespans decrease of the kings afterwards dramatically down to modern day lifespans, which is, if you read the Bible, very similar to what you find in the Bible. That's the Sumerian king list. So that's some archaeological evidence going right back into early history. Let's move on. These are called the Ebla tablets. We have basically 6,000 of these tablets. It was an ancient city-state, uh, third millennia BC, and what's interesting most of these are really nothing related to the bible they just teach us a lot about these early civilizations however there are a couple of them that very interestingly mention the cities of sodom and gomorrah now of course if you know of sodom and gomorrah fame what the biblical narrative this is these two cities have long been scoffed at by skeptics for just being a story in the bible they never existed but then we find them on these stones and they're not talking about the Bible, though it's a commercial text that we're reading here. So I think it's a receipt, actually, that you have here, where they were dealing with these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, proving that they were actually historical cities. And also in these tablets, you have the five cities of the plain. Uh, if, you, if you know your Bible in Genesis 14, uh, Abraham had to go and rescue someone, and he, he ended up fighting these five uh, kings from these different cities of the plain. You have all of these mentioned by name, these cities, very, very ancient cities in these tablets. And this sort of thing, again, is quite unheard of to confirm such unique and specific details that we find in the Bible. So that's just another, another thing here. So I'm going to give you now... And these are somewhat in chronological order. They sort of take us briefly through the narrative of the Bible. I haven't made sure they're exact, but they're, you'll get the idea. We're going to take a broad sweep now through Old Testament history, and then we'll come up into New Testament times. The Menepta Stele, or it's often known just as the Israel Stele. This describes the victories of Pharaoh Menepta of Egypt over the people of Israel in about 1200 BC. And this is the earliest extra-biblical mention of Israel thus far known. 
And the little phrase that is important, it says, Israel is laid waste and his seed is not, when he's talking about one of the destructions. Now, what is so interesting about this, not only is it confirms the historical existence of Israel, which, again, is a nation that was brought into being by the Lord at this time, but it also proves that the Exodus and the conquest under Joshua had already taken place by 1200 BC. And this, again, fits with the period of the Bible in the Judges, when the Israelites were settling in the land of Canaan that we now call Israel. So this is, a very, again, a very significant and important piece of biblical evidence that confirms the biblical story, the Manepta Stele. Let's go look at something else. If you've ever heard of King David, the very important king in the Bible, who wrote much of the Bible. We just finished studying his, the book of Psalms, didn't we, not too long ago. King David was the author of many of them. And in Israel today, you'll find things like the King David Hotel and, and his name and the city of David. You can go and visit the ancient city of David there today. But of course, there's a lot of people who say, well, it's just in the Bible again. It never actually existed. People have this extreme skepticism when they come to the history of the Bible. You see, it's a skepticism that they don't apply to any other ancient literature. It just seems to be the Bible. But that skepticism is unfounded. And in fact, the Bible has so much more evidence corroborating it than people are willing to admit. They found this Tel Dan inscription. It was only found in 1993, an archaeologist working in the old city of Dan, Old Testament city of Dan, northern Israel. They found these three pieces of inscribed stone in Aramaic. And interestingly, you have the expression, the house of David which is, if you know the Bible, this is how you refer to the, the Davidic dynasty, the line of the King David. And this is very crucial for us because we're standing here in a church today, aren't we, worshipping Jesus. Jesus was from the house of David. He's a Davidic descendant. That's how he had to come into this world to be from the line of David, the line of King David. So this is uh, a very important thing that we have here, the house of David on this thing. And it also shows us that David was known it also mentions on this stone that there is a king of Israel and a king of Judah. Again, if you know the biblical narrative, very specific details, the kingdom of Israel split in the early days of its history, didn't it? They split into a northern kingdom and then a southern kingdom, and they had two different monarchies running concurrently in these two different kingdoms. A very, very unique and specific detail laid out for us on this stone that there was in fact a king of the north and a king of the south at this time. So again, very, very uh, important piece of evidence that we have there, the Teldan tablet. And this doesn't look like much, but it's quite important. This is a 3,000-year-old, what they call a beaker weight. They found this very recently, just last year, I believe, actually, in exca excavations under the Western Wall. So if you go to Israel today, you've probably seen pictures of the Temple Mount, the controversy, and all the Jewish people stand in front of the wall, and that's where they pray, because that is the nearest part to the old Holy of Holies on the Temple, that they say. And when excavations were, were happening under there, they found one of these old circular stone, and it has the word beaker inscribed in very ancient Hebrew on the front of it. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll find that this little weight is quite important. In the book of Exodus, a beaker weight was supposed to be the donation that the Jewish people brought to the Temple for maintenance and during the census and this sort of thing. Exodus 38, verse 26, it says, One beaker per head, that is half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who goes through the counting from 20 years old upward. So that was the temple tax, basically, that we talked about. And during the first period, the first temple, Solomon's temple, they didn't have silver half shekel coins, so they would bring a beaker weight and just silver, and they would weigh them out. That is what they did, and that's how they'd pay their tax. So... Um, it's very significant that they found this particular weight right under the, the Western Wall, the Temple Mount. It also actually gives quite a lot of good evidence that this is where the temple was, 
There's controversy about that today with many different views. This is one of those things that do tell us that probably was roughly at least where the temple was up on the Temple Mount there. And it's very important because once again, it's written in very ancient Hebrew and this proves the deep historical connection to the Jewish people and that piece of property. Interestingly, as we've been studying in Revelation, you know that piece of property is going to be very contentious in future history. It actually says that that piece of property is going to be trampled down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Even today, the Jewish people cannot go up on that Temple Mount because it's, it's controlled by the Islamic al-Waqf. And they are Gentiles, not Jewish people. And that's just, again, another thing that proves the history of the Bible. But yet, every time we dig under the Western Wall, we find things that are written in ancient Hebrew, which are far outdating all the, the modern groups that claim ownership over that land. So it's historical, and it also gives you some good evidence for the prof prophetic part of the Bible there. This is the biblical uh, Pharaoh monument. This is, again, a very new piece of evidence. This was just discovered last year. This was in a farmer's field in northern Egypt. And what's interesting about it is it describes, it's a monument that was obviously put there by a, a pharaoh named Hopfra. Um, we don't know much about this pharaoh, but interestingly, he's one of the pharaohs, the few pharaohs that are actually named in the Bible. As you know, obviously, Egypt overlapped with a lot of the biblical history. And it says in Jeremiah 44, verse 30, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm going to give over Pharaoh Hopfra, king of Egypt, to the hand of his enemies, to the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave over Zedekiah, king of Judah, to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and was seeking his life. We learn that Hopfra led an Egyptian army to Judah, which is Israel, to help King Zedekiah resist the Babylonian invasion, and it did not go well for either of them. That's the story there. Babylon was the, the rising empire. So in that passage, we not only have reference to a biblical pharaoh that we knew nothing about, that again proves the Bible that was recording accurate history. We also have the fulfillment of a prophecy that we know this invasion did not go very well. And Babylon, uh, according to Jeremiah, Babylon became the big player in the ancient Near East at this time. So that is um, the biblical pharaoh monument. And as you can see here, these are two of these things were only found last year. Every year, the Biblical Archaeology Society releases its 10 top important finds for the year. And you can go back 2022, 21, you can just go all the way through and read them. It's a fascinating read. Every year, as archaeologists turn over the spade, they find things that they can put on that list that confirm the Bible. So just have that in your mind when you read statements from Gandalf saying that the Bible should have these fictional warnings in front of it. Actually, it should have a different warning, a truth warning, I would say, in front of it, which it does. That's what it claims to be. Thy word is truth. And this is what we see on and on and on. Let's look at another one now. And this is one of my favorite ones. It's a very specific one. The black obelisk of Shalmaneser. This is a very important thing. Oh, I forget this is either in the, it's in the Louvre, I believe, the Paris Museum in Paris. It's a six foot tall obelisk. And it records in pictures the conquests of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. You'll know him from the Bible. He's important in the Syrian Empire. And what's so fascinating about this is that you'll see on one of these panels is an engraving of a man bowing down. And underneath that, it says, Tribute of Jehu the Israelite. Again, if you know the Bible, King Jehu was one of the Israelite kings, and he ended up, Assyria was the big empire on the block, and he ended up having to pay tribute uh, to the Assyrians at some point. And we actually have a, a carved picture here of one of these ancient Israelite kings bowing down to the Assyrian Empire. This is very specific stuff here that we have corroborating the Bible. Again, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser, and there we have our first, actually, graphic picture of an Israelite king. 
Now let's look at another one. This is e equally a favourite one of mine today, simply because it's such a specific detail that you only find in the Bible, and it can be confirmed just so wonderfully. It's Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, if you've been to Israel, we went to Israel a few years back, we went through Hezekiah's Tunnel, you'll know this. The story is King Hezekiah, he was a king of Judah, and when they were under siege from the Assyrian Empire, he decided to ancient warfare. The idea was you would surround a city, you cut off their water supply, you cut off their food, and then you basically starve them out before you can attack them. That's pretty much what you see. Ancient warfare is how they did it. So one of the key things that you had to have was a fresh water supply into the city, and then you could outlast the siege. So Jerusalem was unique because it had a fresh water spring. And it was just outside the city walls. So what Hezekiah wanted to do is he wanted to build an underground tunnel from that spring into the city of David, into, into their walls. So they had a fresh water supply and they could outgive the siege. That's the idea there. And we read about that in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Kings Chronicles. You can see the verses on the screen there. As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all the achievements, how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. Now, this is a picture roughly of where you can see where it comes from the top to the bottom there. Now, think about this. This is, this is an, a, not only a feat of engineering in this day. This is men, you know, how you'd actually line up to meet a tunnel when you're digging a tiny little two-foot-wide, three-foot-wide tunnel to meet up with one starting one end and one starting the other, but they managed to do it, uh, and they did it very well. It's 533 metres long, carved into the limestone rock of the Kidron Valley, dating to about 7th century BC, and it comes out, starts at the spring, and it comes out at what we call the Pool of Siloam, which is, if you remember, where Jesus did many of his miracles in the Pool of Siloam, John chapter 9. And if anyone's in doubt... This is what made it so amazing when they were excavating this uh, a while back, uh, in modern times though. In the middle point of this tunnel, the people who were digging it out, Hezekiah's men, decided to put an inscription at the place where they finally met each other. Do you remember when they were digging the channel tunnel? And you remember you see the pictures of where they finally came through and they had those big drilling machines. Reminds me similar sort of thing of, of that going on here. And on this little plaque basically says that it's just this is where we met, digging under Hezekiah's reign. It's a very important thing during the reign of Hezekiah. And if anyone's in doubt, here is Mark next to that very inscription in Israel. That was from our 2019 tour there. We'll hopefully be going again in 2023. But that is Hezekiah's tunnel. You can actually walk through the entire tunnel today. It's, it's back, pitch black and you have torches and we did this and there's still fresh water in your feet coming up to about your knees. Usually that spring is still active. So it's quite an amazing thing to do. But it's really more amazing because, I mean, this was only talked about in the Bible, the reign of King Hezekiah and the fact that he did something so specific when the Assyrians were, were attacking him and that you can still go there today and find the exact same tunnel and walk through it 2,000 years uh, later. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive, if you ask me. That, that is far, far, far from being fiction. And then, if anyone needs more corroboration of the events of King Hezekiah, if you know the story of King Hezekiah, he was a good king of Israel. He worked very closely with someone called Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. Now, there's a whole book in the Bible called the Book of Isaiah. It was written by Isaiah the prophet. It's one of those books written uh, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. It's one of those books that tells us 
everything almost that we that we know about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament anyway it has those famous passages where it talks about this this man coming to die for the sins of the world that he would die in place of people who in fact were sinners and he would be sinless himself and that was all written again hundreds of years before Jesus and we actually interestingly have they found as they were excavating again in Israel the seals the royal seals as in the olden times instead of you know, stamps that they would they would wax seal things that's how and clay seal things that's how they they named things basically we found the seals of king hezekiah and also the seal of isaiah the prophet so these two both had a seal so these are two major characters that you have in the bible that again tell us so much about jesus christ we have two seals one says belonging to hezekiah son of ahaz king of judah and the other one says isaiah navi which is the hebrew word for prophet to Isaiah the prophet, found in pretty close proximity, which makes sense because they are um, two men that worked very closely together in the leading of Israel. So just with those few things, you can see we've taken a massive scope of Old Testament history, confirmed many very, very unique and specific details. Let's move into slightly more modern times and talk about some New Testament history now. Same sort of thing, on and on. You either love uh, archaeology or you, or you don't, so. <laughs> but this is good to know this sort of stuff anyway. For no other reason except when you read those sort of statements like I read before, you can know that that is just not quite the full story of what you're being told. The Pool of Siloam. Uh, we have this text in John 9. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, applied it to the clay and said, go wash in the Pool of Siloam. Uh, so he went away and washed and came back. It was one of the, the sites of the re- recording of Jesus' miracle, miracles here. Now, again, it was one of these things that skeptics and historians would look at and say there's no place, there's no such thing as the Pool of Siloam because, remember, they didn't believe in Hezekiah, that he made the stream between the two. They hadn't found this yet. Jerusalem's one of those very unusual cities where it's just got layer and layer and layer of civilization built upon it. So everything going back from the Turks to the Byzantine, all the way back to the first century, they just build on top of each other. That's why there are still so many treasures under the ground. But in 2005, the Israeli um, government were replacing sewages, sewage pipes in Jerusalem, and they stumbled upon the Pool of Siloam. And they, they know from different places that they have and writings that we have exactly where it was, and they've excavated it all now. It's 225 feet long on the south side of the Temple Mount. And whilst they were doing this, they also found uh, coins. It seems to be a thing of mankind. Whenever there's a body of water in, a, in, in brick or in closed space, people just want to throw coins in it. They, they did that in the first century too. We found many coins from the first century in the bottom of this, the Pool of Siloam. And... For me, that's just quite amazing in and of itself. So this is one of the sites where Jesus was doing miracles, where he was talked about when we find it again as written from the Bible. One more, uh, a few more here. Another thing, this is known as the Pilate inscription. The man, Pontius Pilate, very important if you read the Gospels. He was the prefect of Judea at this time, and he was the one, remember, who famously washed his hands of Jesus and gave him over to the people to be crucified. Now, for many, many years, again, people scoffed at the idea of this person called Pontius Pilate. No one had ever heard of him, no one knew of him, there was no record about him. He was just a a, a Roman magistrate, until they were excavating a theater in Caesarea, and underneath one of the seats, they found this stone, and on the inscription, uh, it says, to the people of Caesarea, Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And the date dates to the time 
when that would have been the case with Jesus. It's the only inscription, in fact, that mentions Pontius Pilate outside of the Bible. But again, it gives us massive corroboration that this man who played such an important part in the events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus was, in fact, historical. So we see this again and again and again, the same sort of thing here. Let's look at another one. This is, uh, we call this the temple warning. The temple that stood on the Temple Mount in Jesus' day is known as the Second Temple, or Herod's Temple. Herod the Great was the, the, the king at that time in that area, and he was a massive, very amazing architect. His building projects are, are legendary in that part of the world, and he built this fascinating temple. Part of it, well, he rebuilt part of the temple that was there, I should say, and the, he had this area where there was the outer court, and that was where non-Jewish people would go in, and then they had sort of segregated off to the center where the Jewish priests and that would do their work. And they would have signs basically saying, if you're not a Jewish priest, you do not go past these lines or else you'll be killed. That I mean, was a very strict punishment that they had there. The Jewish historian Josephus describes these uh, warnings to us in his works, uh, written very early on from this time. And in 1817, they found one of these notices. Um, again, it's a very unique and specific detail if you think about actually being able to record what signs they had up in, a, in an old building. There's not many places where you would be able to record that and find that again. But they found this sign. It says, no foreigner may pass the barrier and enclosure surrounding the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will be himself to blame for his resulting death. And the Apostle Paul makes use of this obviously known architectural feature where he says he's brought down the dividing wall. Remember that verse where he's talking about how the gospel has lay, laid down, the gospel is open to Jew and Gentile and all alike, to every tribe, tongue and nation. He talks about bringing this division down. He's obviously making a sort of analogy with the wall of the temple here. So he obviously was aware of this architecture. So again, proving these very, very specific details that we find. Now let's look at just a couple more and then I'll tie this up for you. This is known as the Sergius Paulus inscription. In the book of Acts, you'll find, so this is after the time of Jesus now, the Apostle Paul is the main player in the book of Acts. Really, it says he was in this area where it says, who with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, and it goes on. And the whole story is basically, this, this man, the Sergius Paulus family, were a very important family in Rome. You find them referenced in Pliny and many other Roman writings. Paul led this man uh, to the Lord, and he became a Christian. And then he had his family estate in Poseidon of Antioch. This is uh, what we know. And interesting, when you read the Bible, right after Paul leads this man to the Lord, you find him on his way to Poseidon of Antioch. Most people assume that Sergius Paulus said, can you go and tell my family this also? He wanted Paul to go and witness to his family. And in Poseidon of Antioch, they found the Sergius Paulus stone, which is just, again, very common thing. Rich families making buildings, they'd always have the stones engraved with their, with their names, like a status symbol. You find this one here. But again, just highlight, this is a very, very specific detail here recorded for us, really mainly in the Bible, but also in a few other Roman uh, historical documents. But we know this man was one of the early people that Paul led to the Lord. All right, a little bit out of chronological order here, but this is a very important find again. This is known as the Caiaphas Ossery. First century, what they would do, instead of coffins, they would have 
os bone boxes basically osseries so they they would put the, the bones of people in here most families would have group ones and they'd have them in their tombs in 1990 this beautifully decorated ossery was found during construction just on the outskirts of jerusalem's peace forest southwest of jerusalem and the inscription reads on the side in english anyway it's written in hebrew and aramaic it says joseph son of caiaphas joseph son of caiaphas if you remember the name Caiaphas, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And I won't go through it all now, but there's other son, there's other, there's a whole family in this tomb, and you can trace them to the lineage of the Joseph family here, which was Caiaphas. And if you you know the Bible, he was the high priest at the time, and they, they think this was a high priest tomb because it was elaborately decorated. There was obviously a person of good standing. He was the man who really tried Jesus. Do you remember the mock trials that Jesus had where it was basically he was guilty come what may? Um, Caiaphas was the high priest who presided over this event. So again, another very, very important person in the life and narrative of, that we find in the Bible. And inside this bone box, there were the remains of a 60-year-old man that scholars actually believe are Caiaphas himself. So that's the actual high priest who sentenced Jesus to death. One more this is the Gallio inscription. This is again from the time of the book of Acts. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth on his second missionary journey. Let me read to you in Acts 18, verse 12. It says, But while Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God, contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong, or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. So it's obviously an altercation. Paul's preaching in Corinth. The local people are not happy about this. They start a riot. Paul, as they often did, he got arrested and brought before the Roman magistrates. One of these magistrates was this person called Gallio. And we again here have a couple of inscriptions actually have been found with his name on in this area. He was a quite an important person. This one is actually written by the Roman emperor. So this is very important. This is written by the Roman Emperor Claudius, and it speaks Junius Gallio, and he calls him my friend and proconsul, again showing he was a high-ranking Roman official, and he had communication with the emperor. And what's interesting is this one has a date on it. It's dated to August AD 52, actually written in the text. And this is very interesting because it gives us a time marker that we can know when this event of Paul happened, and thus you can accurately date the entire journey of the Book of Acts pretty much through this one piece of archaeology. So it's a very important stone, and it helps us to fix most of the ministry of Paul when he was in Corinth and going around Greece and all these places. And it's accurate to what the Bible records. Again, right, I'll give you one last final thing, which is kind of related in, in a roundabout way. Uh, i just share it with you because it's new and it's interesting. You can read, you've probably all seen, you've heard of the crucifixion, obviously, and you've heard of the way it was one of the most uh, vicious ways to kill someone, perfected over many years, really with the Romans, but not actually invented by them, but they, they perfected it, they used it to mass effect. We hear about it, we see it, it's in loads of ancient writings, but until recently we haven't really had many examples of seeing people who have been crucified. There's one, there's one heel bone of a man in Jerusalem uh, who was crucified, but just last year... In, actually, in England, this was found in Cambridgeshire, they found uh, another man who had been crucified, and you see he has a heel bone through his heel of his foot there, and this was around the time when the Romans were in charge of London. 
like about 400 AD, I think, this stage two, when uh, the Romans were the ruling party at this time. And you can tell that, as is recorded, they did still use crucifixion as a way to deter criminals, and that was just one of their execution methods. So again, because people even doubt, you know, as skeptics do, they doubt every, every factor of the Bible. Crucifixion is one of those things that's even come under the skeptics' eyes at some point. But again now... They just continue, again, as the archaeologists do their work, to find more and more evidence. This was a very common way that the Romans killed people. So let me tie this all together for you, and then I'll bring it to a close with my final point. Bearing in mind, this is just, what, 12, 13 items I've shared with you. There are over 25,000 biblical sites, thousands upon thousands of artefacts like this. Like I say, they bring out new ones every single year that go through details that confirm details in the Bible. I've just looked at 12. We've already seen things that are consistent with the biblical narrative from the time of the flood in Genesis to the early city-states around in the time of Abraham to the time that Israel entered the land of Canaan to the time that King David existed, that he had a dynasty, he had a house, he had a throne. That means he had sons, that his kingdom was divided, that Israel was divided. We've seen specific weights, very unusual Hebrew, ancient Hebrew weights that were used at the time of the temple, found underneath the temple mount, We've seen a carving of an Israelite king. We've actually been able to walk through a tunnel that was built by King Hezekiah at the time of Isaiah the prophet, and you can see that without a doubt. We've seen the existence of the man Pilate, who was the prefect when Jesus was around. He was the man who, who really sentenced Jesus to death. We've seen the pool of Siloam where Jesus did his miracles. We've seen the bones of the high priest who tried Jesus, Caiaphas. We've seen the existence of the Jewish temple and its very specific architecture and its signs as well as many very important Roman government officials that we find written about in the Bible. Now, to sum this up for you, like, unless it's being missed on you here, this is unheard of in archaeology. Like, you do not find really anything else like this in the history of archaeology, something that has so many different corroborations from so many different lines of evidence. And I'm just looking at the history here. We could talk about prophecy too and add those two things together and make a very strong case for the, for the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible. But this is just history now because I wanted you to see that if what we're saying is true, that God came to this earth, he did what he did in the person of Jesus Christ, died for our sins, rose again the third day, and he has been in charge of history ever since, called forth Abraham, called the Israelites out of Egypt, did the Exodus, all these things, brought them into the promised lands, told them to build the temple there. If that is all true, you should expect to see evidence of it around the world. And that is exactly what we do see. So failing a better explanation from those who would claim that the Bible is fiction, which is not forthcoming, why not? except that this actually might be onto something and take a real hard look at what the message of this book actually is. It's unheard of, it's amazing, and now as we move back into our verse-by-verse -verse studies, hopefully you can just have even more greater amazement at God's hand in history and the Word and the way he organises this world. Now, we as Christians understand what the Word of God is. We love the Word of God. It testifies to the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. And I want to read to you just one thing before we close that sums up how we should think about the word of God. But before I do that, there's a question really that doing this sort of a study asks us, isn't it? And particularly if you, if you are maybe one who would lean towards agreeing with those people that we read at the beginning, all of this evidence, as Josh McDowell always used to say, demands a verdict. You cannot sit on the fence on this stuff because the claims of the Bible are too um, important to deny. But yet you have to explain away a lot of stuff, and you do have to explain away 
Like one day we know we will all give an account of our lives before the Lord. And as, as believers, we actually don't give an account of our lives. We just appeal to Jesus. And that's why, Jesus, we, that's why we put our faith in Jesus. He is the one that stands in our place, the substitute. When we read about Pontius Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, that's this story unfolding in the history of the world. Jesus coming to die in our place for the sins that we committed, for the things that ruined our relationship with God so that we could have relationship with God again. You've probably heard Christians say things like repentance, these, maybe these words that sound old-fashioned, but their meaning of them is still very true. This is what God wants us to acknowledge and accept. He came to die for us so that we could live again. This is the whole message and mission of Jesus. And like I said, if that is true, you should see his fingerprints throughout the history of the world, and you do, all over the place. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every culture, every era of history, I could go through and do a study like this with you. You see God working and you can see the impact that Jesus has when the word of God is taken to, pe to cultures that don't know him. People meet him, the living word of God, people get saved. When they took it to the Aztecs, they stopped sacrificing people. When they took it to the islands of Fiji, they stopped eating people. This is what the word of God does, because as you start hearing and believing and reading and applying the word of God, it will bring you closer to God. The idea is that it transforms you to be more like Jesus Christ. And this is ultimately a work that will happen in our lives until we see him like he is. So this is the question I would ask. What's your verdict on the evidence? Either explain it away or take a real long, hard look at what Jesus says in the Bible. And let me end. I want to end by reading to you. This is the preface to the King James Version 1611. The translators of this book put this pretty much better than anyone uh, I've ever read since then about what the word of God should be to the Christian. So I've kind of updated a little bit of the language for, for words that we won't understand. It says, it is not only an armor, but also a whole armory of weapons, both offensive and defensive, whereby we may save ourselves and put the enemy to flight. It is not a herb, but a tree, or rather a whole paradise of trees of life, which bring forth fruit every month, and the fruit thereof is for meat and the leaves for medicine. It is not a pot of manna or a bottle of oil, which were for memory only, or for a meal's meat or two, but as it were a shower of heavenly bread sufficient for a whole host, be it never so great, as it were a whole cellar full of oil vessels, whereby all our necessities may be provided for and our debts discharged. In a word, it is a breadbasket of wholesome food against corrupted traditions, it is a physician's shop of preservative against poisoned heresy, it is a collection of laws, of profitable laws against rebellious spirits, a treasury of most costly jewels against beggarly rudiments. This is 16th century English. Finally, a fountain of most pure water springing up into everlasting life. And what marvel, the original thereof being from heaven, not from earth, the author being God, not man, the indicter, the Holy Spirit, not the wit of the apostles or prophets, the penmen such as were sanctified from the womb and endued with a principal portion of God's spirit, the matter, verity, piety, purity, up no, uprightness, the form, God's word, God's testimony, God's oracles, the word of truth, the word of salvation, the effects, light of understanding, stableness of persuasion, repentance from dead works, newness of life, holiness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Lastly, the end and reward of the study thereof, fellowship with the saints, participation in the heavenly nature, fruition of an inheritance, immortal, undefiled, that will never fade away. Happy is the man that delighteth in the scripture, and thrice happy the man that meditates on it day and night. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. 
If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.